again. I'm always intimidated by um, well-known, and as the case may or may not be well-loved or infamous passages, uh, they seem to me to be more difficult to preach on well. But the first hymn that we started with this evening, How Firm a Foundation, When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, My grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. Or, uh, the last half of the third line, For I will be with thee thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. One of the things I'm hoping to do tonight as we go through Exodus 32, it's the passage on the golden calf, I think we're all aware of it, it's very easy to read a passage like Exodus 32 and immediately say, I would have never done that. Um, But if we put ourselves in the shoes of the Israelites, two things happen. First, the sin becomes more understandable. And second, the sin is shown for what it really is, completely irrational. There's just no sense to it. But that doesn't make it... Not understandable. What we're going to do tonight, Exodus 32 is broken up roughly into three scenes. The first scene is what is going on with the people at the foot of Mount Sinai. The second scene is Moses still on Mount Sinai and the Lord telling Moses what the people are doing. And the third scene is Moses' descent and dealing with the people. Tonight we're dealing with scene one. The first six verses of the chapter, the sin of the people. Next week, we will be covering scenes two and three, the Lord's interaction with Moses and Moses' interaction with the people. So tonight, let's simply read scene one, verses one to six of Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in, your, in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool And made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The way we're going to structure tonight um, is a little bit different than I often do um, when I'm going over a narrative. What we'll do is we'll take this text in three concentric circles. The the inner circle, what does the text say? Just plain exegesis, walking through it, understanding uh, where we are in Exodus 32. The second ring is why does the text 
say what it says. What, what is the point of preserving this story out of all of the things that could have been written? All of the things that could have been preserved, what does this add to the biblical canon? And the third thing, then, we'll just broadly call it application. Uh, so we'll be covering uh, roughly the same ground from three different angles. And the first one is, what does the text say? To get a good handle on that, let's consider the context. The people are at the foot of Sinai. Moses is up on the mountain receiving instructions from God. This is a continuation of the story, not picking up from Exodus 24. In fact, if you have a Bible, flip back with me to Exodus 24. And what we'll see there is... That is the passage where Moses descended, said, Here is what God has said. What say you, O Israel? And they say, Everything God has said we will do. And they confirm the covenant. They say, Yes, we are entering into covenant relationship with this God. Chapter 25, Moses, end of chapter 24, Moses goes back up onto the mountain. Exodus 24, verse 18. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. We should not think that what happens in Exodus 25 to Exodus 31 is a pause on the story. It's not. The story continues through everything that happens in those chapters. In fact, if we were to red letter the Old Testament, everything here would be red letter. This is like... The Sermon on the Mount of the Old Testament, um, of sorts, right? This is all God's speech to Moses. So when we read Exodus 24, verse 18, let not your eyes glaze over from Exodus 25 to Exodus 31. That is crucial to the story. Because when we get to Exodus 31, verse 18, the last verse of Exodus 31, And he gave to Moses, when he finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with a finger of God. That brackets everything from Exodus 25 to Exodus 31 as those 40 days. Moses is up on the mountain, the people are at the foot. We do not know when, in those 40 days, Exodus 32, verse 1 began. I doubt it began on day 39 when the people approached Aaron and said, Hey, we don't know when Moses is coming down. Can you quick make us a golden calf? It takes time to do that, right? It takes time for the people to bring all of their contributions to Aaron. It takes time for Aaron to fashion the golden calf, set it up, There's administration that follows all of that. We don't know when in the 40 days that process began. What we do know is that during all of this time, while the people are at Sinai, water has been mysteriously coming out of the rock to provide them with drink. Manna has been falling. Six out of seven mornings, the people have been eating it. And the mountain has been burning and covered in smoke during all of this time. And while all of those things are happening, what do the people do? They assemble themselves against Aaron and they say to him, Rise, make for us gods. 
while the Lord was giving instructions to Moses on how Israel could meet with God, what do the people do? They forget he's speaking. What happens in Exodus 25 to Exodus 31 is the continuation of the story in that God is providing Moses with a way for the people to actually live with him or for him to live with them, depending on your perspective. Six times in those chapters, the Lord says, I'm giving you these instructions that I might live with the people of Israel and that they might live with me. One sampling of that is Exodus 29, starting in verse 42. This is probably the most elaborate of them all, but it is a representation of what comes in the other five instances. Exodus 29, verse 42. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am Yahweh their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. The main theme of the Exodus isn't for the people of Israel to leave Exodus for the better land of Canaan. It is the theme of God delivering his people so that they might be enraptured with the wonder of worship. Exodus 5 verse 1, let my people go that they may serve me. Uh, have a feast to the Lord, actually, in Exodus 5, verse 1. Six other times, Moses says, let God's people go that they may serve him. They understood that to be a sacrifice, a feast, which is brought up in the other three occasions. So the Exodus isn't for the point of Canaan. It's for the point of worship. All of the things that God has been giving Moses from Exodus 25 to Exodus 30. One, And what do the people do? They assemble themselves against Aaron and they say to him, Rise, make for us gods. Now Aaron was a natural pick, given his role in Israel's deliverance. Not only that, consider it politically, he is Moses' older brother after all, and isn't it natural for him to want preeminence over Moses? Aaron being installed now as the new head of the nation is likely going to be reluctant to give it up when Moses comes back, right? Um, So uh, he seems to be a natural pick. And in wanting the idol, let's sympathize with the people a little bit. They were looking for some tangible expression of hope. Make for us gods who will go before us because this Moses, that man, we don't know Uh, uh, who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. 
It's not wrong to want a tangible expression of their hope. Moses was gone. He was the one they looked to as the one to guide and lead them. They're looking for a replacement of sorts to that. They were looking for some sort of banner that they could wave in front of the people and that the people would gather around or that they would follow behind with some sort of confidence so that they could continue on in their goal of achieving Canaan. The irony is, God was giving them that very thing during these 40 days. That's what the tabernacle was. And they come up with their own version of it. Now, I want to point out, God does give us tangible expressions of our hope as well, right? That's what baptism and the Lord's Supper, and especially the written word of God, are all about. And it's that written word that is supposed to be our guide. And it was the written word that was supposed to be the guide for the people as well. It's very easy to miss in the text, but in Exodus 24, verses 3 and 4, we are brought this. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. They had the words. They had the book of the covenant. And I think what those words are referring to is primarily Exodus 20 to Exodus 23. They have the book of the covenant, you might say. But the tragedy is that they base their decision on what to do next, not on the words of God, but on what they admit they don't know. This man, Moses, we don't know what's happened to him. Let's do something else. Ignore the word of God. Make your decision on what you don't know. That's always a recipe for good decision-making, isn't it? Now, that is what we often do. I mean, we are finite. We often, and I would say always, to some degree, make our decisions because of what we don't know. But the tragedy is dismissing what we do know in preference for what we don't. That is what the text I think, says. But why include this in the canon? First, it shows the nature, or the context, I should say, it shows the context of our temptation. Verse 32, uh, chapter 32, verse 1. And the people saw that Moses delayed to descend from the mountain. They escaped Egypt. They heard God's voice on the mountain. They sealed the covenant, and now they wait, and wait, and wait. And the question arises, Moses is the only mediator between us and God, Yahweh. Is he coming back? Was he consumed by the fire? On top of the mountain? Did he get lost in the smoke and stumble and break his neck? He didn't have the the jingly tassels on him. The high priest did. Is he still alive? Can we go on without him? 
Is his leadership essential? Can God be appeased by any other way? Can God be accessed in any other way than through him? Those are the sorts of questions they would have. But God has some questions of his own. Who will the people be loyal to while they wait? Will they be faithful to the covenant? Will they allow me to be the one who gives them their understanding of themselves? Who will they trust? Do they believe that I am still really here? I mean, they are drinking the water, eating the manna. They see the mountain. Are they going to trust that I am really concerned for them and will actually take care of them? Who will they worship? Are their hearts given fully to God, to me, or do they still pursue their own ambitions in their own way? In short, will they walk by faith as those formed by God's works and words? Now Moses has been gone a while, And like I said, it is unlikely that they waited until day 40 to actually approach Aaron, but the text gives the impression of 40 days at Sinai. And part of the reason for that is Moses' absence is long enough to produce a genuine crisis in their minds. And I think this text, following Eden, becomes a paradigm for all sorts of temptations, including Jesus' temptations in the wilderness that he experienced. Let's turn over to Matthew 4. Starting in verse 1. Jesus was led up by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He's led up to be tempted by the devil. The Spirit is the one who leads them there. I'm going to go back one more time to our first hymn tonight. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie. Or verse 3, when through the deep waters I call thee to go. The hymn, How Firm a Foundation, speaks a lot about temptation. And there's a fine line between trials and God's testing and temptations. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, I think... In another gospel, during those 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What did Israel not do? Live by the written word of God. 
And the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Prove that God is trustworthy. And Jesus says, No, do not put the Lord your God to the test, which is to say, I will trust him without testing him. That's kind of the... The catch in that one, right? Prove that you can trust him. I don't need to prove I can trust him. I trust him. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. What a difference from up. Make gods for us who will go before us to Canaan. That is the context of temptation. There is a wait. There is a long time where God appears to be inactive. Moses, our spiritual leader, is gone. And what are we to do when we wait and wait and wait and wait? And what the people observe is true. The people saw that Moses delayed I would prefer to tarry from descending, not to descend from the mountain. It's true. But that is observed apart from the larger context, or we might say from the eyes of faith. That's the nature of temptation. Again, the tragedy is the ignorance they willingly took on. This Moses... The man who brought us up from the land of Egypt. It's kind of a derogatory way to refer to Moses. And it is to deny that Yahweh is responsible for their freedom. In all of the people's speech, no reference to their God. Reference to Moses, no reference to their God. They entirely forget Yahweh. Even as they drink the water coming from the rock, as they eat the manna every day, and as they see the mountain burning, covered in smoke, they forget Yahweh. Psalm 14, verses 1 to 3, is a fitting description of the people at this moment. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is no one who does good. The Lord looks down, I'm going to rephrase that, verse 2, Yahweh looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They have all turned aside, together they have become corrupt, there is no one who does good, not even one. First, Exodus 32 presents it as the people in unison did this. The second thing They say, make us gods, but the point of Psalm 14 isn't that the generic deity is forgotten, it's that Yahweh specifically is forgotten. That's what verse 2 is trying to communicate. Yahweh looks down from heaven on the children of man. There are none who seek after God. Yahweh and God, same thing in Psalm 14. Not necessarily the same thing in people's 
mind, but it is the same. They entirely forget that God. In making the calf, they evict Yahweh from his own story. Make us gods, something less than the God who brought us up to go before us. And in doing so, they take on the view that surrounds them. Everyone around them views the story the way they are viewing it now. The story is primarily about us. This is a story of human affairs. We worship God for added psychological and emotional strength. That's what God is there for. He helps us in what we're doing. This is our story. And seeking other gods, by making the idol, they're really just simply seeking to be their own masters. Right? Who controls the idol? He doesn't go before them. They may put the idol before them so the mob will follow. But the idol is a crude puppet. It is tangible, yes, but that tangible object follows the whims of the elite or the whims of the mob, as the case may be. The idol can only go where people move it. Now again, let's sympathize with them just a little bit. Who doesn't wish that they could change something in their own life? Their circumstances left a lot to be desired. They aren't where they want to be. They're in a hot desert. They're dependent on water flowing from a rock. How long would you trust water flowing from a rock? When is the manna going to stop? We don't know how it gets here. We just know it comes with a dew. What dew there is in a desert. They live hand to mouth. Their leader is absent. Tempers are short. There are still pregnant and nursing mothers. There is still the stress of raising children or the frustration of not having children. There are threats of hostile opponents all around them. They are aging and God appears to be silent. What are they to do? But don't forget, God intended to test them. And this also shows the results of failing in times of testing. When they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, it came at substantial cost to themselves. Verse 2. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand. They plundered themselves. And he made a calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now one point to make. In verse 1, the ESV says, up, make us gods, plural, who will go before us. And in verse 5, uh, sorry, verse 4, 
These are your gods, plural, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The ESV has it in the plural. I believe the NASB has it in the singular. What is going on there? Well, first, the Hebrew word God is in the plural. And it's always in the plural. So when you're reading Genesis 2, for example, Yahweh, gods, is how it would grammatically be. Um, It's just the, the natural way to refer to gods. And so the question is this. Is this idolatry in the sense of they are forsaking Yahweh in preference for other divine beings... Or is this supposed to be a tangible expression of the singular Yahweh who brought them up? The calf was not likely intended to be the God, but the pedestal for the God. Imagine this. Remember, it's all symbolism, right? The idea is that the God stands on the back of the bull and he's harnessed the bull. He is the one who controls the strength, the vitality, the fertility of the creature upon which he rides. He takes on and uh, uses all of the characteristics of that creature for his own ends. So whether this is meant to be a God separate from Yahweh and Aaron compromises in verse 5 and says, tomorrow's a feast for the Lord, or whether this was meant to be Yahweh's throne is left a little ambiguous. And the NASB in its singular and the ESV in its plural shows that ambiguity. We don't know. What did they exactly intend in making this calf? I honestly don't know. My inclination is towards the idea that this was supposed to be a throne for Yahweh. And the reason I think that is twofold. One, at the end of verse 4, He made a golden calf, and they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They are connecting this thing with their experience of the true God. So I'm inclined to think that this was meant to be a representation of Yahweh. Added to that is verse 5, Aaron saw, and he built an altar before it and he called, and Aaron called and he said a feast to Yahweh tomorrow and there is not a chirp against his claim that the celebration to be had tomorrow is meant to be a celebration in front of and on behalf of the Lord now this on the one hand is what makes the idol Quite understandable. Moses is the only mediator between them and God, and his absence, his indefinite absence, does produce a crisis. Their intention is to go forward with the program God has given them. They're hesitant to do it without having some sort of encouragement and support, some sort of mental boost at the very least for the mass of people who are going to have to do the work. And they didn't realize that Yahweh, the true God, wasn't in their thoughts. This was meant to be his throne. But in making this God's throne, they're automatically thinking of the wrong God. 
they don't even realize it. That is the subtlety and the destructive power of this temptation. They aren't even aware of what they're doing. But yet the text makes this look entirely irrational. Because it is. Sin is always that irrational. Does it make sense to make the idol when you're drinking the water, eating the manna, and seeing the mountain burn? That's no sense at all in that. Was this there when they crossed the Red Sea? Was this there when the firstborn died? Was this there at any point in their history? No. But they attribute to this thing everything that was attributed rightly to the God who actually did those things. Makes no sense. But it's still surprisingly understandable. What does this teach us? First, it teaches us to get our story straight. They didn't deny divine help in leaving Egypt. They didn't even deny God's help in Egypt. But they didn't remind themselves that Yahweh single-handedly delivered them after 400 years of waiting from Egypt. And they didn't allow that fact to stir their hearts to wait on the one who's feeding them and providing them with drink and who is burning on Sinai still. They paid attention to selected facts and considered those selected facts only from the point of view of their own understanding. In crisis, they didn't allow the fact of God's deliverance to control them so that they would surrender in faithful obedience to the God who they were in covenant with. They entered covenant with God in chapter 24. Broke it as soon as they have to wait. In crisis, what controls you? Do you remember God's decisive and single-handed work in your deliverance from bondage and God's exclusive claim on your life? If God has freed you from sin, what is cancer? If God has freed you from sin, what is strained relationships? If God has freed you from sin, what is an uncertain future? Financial insecurity. They're all crises. Genuine crises. But remember what God has provided you with to remind you who you are and who he is. They had all sorts of provision around them. You couldn't wake up in the morning without knowing Yahweh was there. You couldn't take a bite. Literally, you couldn't take a bite without remembering Yahweh is there. Neither can we. 
All of those things are meant to remind us this is not our story. This is God's story. God is not the one who helps us in what we're doing. God is the one who has brought us up and delivered us to magnify his name. This is God's story. We live in his play. He's not a character in ours. Israel forgets that immediately. And we forget that very quickly and easily too because the world has never told a true story. Nor can it tell a story entirely truthfully. I enjoy documentaries, most of them. I really enjoy stories that are meant to retell true events. Um, Bridge of Spies uh, is one of them that comes to mind. The King's Speech, other ones like that. Um, I really enjoy those. Right now I'm listening to an audiobook, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, how uh, Hitler came to power um, and what he did with the power once he had it. All of those stories can be told in such a way that God is not even mentioned. He's, he's absent. He's not there. But not one of those stories can be understood apart from recognizing God is the one who's behind all of this. And there's a difference between hearing a story and really understanding a story. All of our stories are told given the bare facts. Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. We're headed toward Canaan. All of the facts can be told apart from Yahweh, if you want to. That's how our stories are all told. We have the obligation to understand all of those stories from the fact of what God has done and what he has said. When you watch those stories, or when you hear those stories, do you understand them from the point of view that Scripture lays out before us? Everything is to be taken in through the filter and the lens of Scripture. Israel wanted to look to the calf with bare reference to Yahweh's story. They wanted to make it theirs, and it was a deadly mistake. Another thing this teaches us is that God makes us live in desperate times to test us. If nothing else, isn't it crucial to know that God does test us? Isn't that one of the greatest aids that he can give us? The knowledge that he tests us, isn't that one of the greatest things he can give us so that we might pass the test? They forgot their 400 years in Egypt within 40 days when it comes to the wait. Israel waited 40 days. Jesus waited 40 days. Israel had all sorts of advantages. Jesus had none, or very, very few advantages. And we too are brought to times of spiritual immobility and waiting. But cling to the confidence and the assurance that you are God's people. He hasn't abandoned you. And if you understand your story correctly, you will see everything around you has been given you by God. What does that tell you about his intentions towards you now? He's not abandoned. He is still there, which then trust God's care for you. 
Hasn't he already given you so much? And if it comes to spiritual matters, remember what God has tangibly given you. Baptism. Reminder of death in Christ and new life in Christ. The Lord's Supper that we had this morning. Jesus' body, his physical body, broken and shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Every time we take it, that's what we're supposed to remember. We take it sometimes with solemnity because we are so acutely aware of our own sins at the moment. And other times we take it with great rejoicing. Because what greater thing could there be than our sins are taken? So it is a, a feast to the Lord. But then again, there is also all the bodily provisions we have surrounding us. So we should not be overwhelmed by the crises we run into. But the third one, worship the Lord in spirit and in full awareness of the truths. The insidiousness of the crime here in Exodus 32 is the half-truths. Was there a God who delivered them from Egypt? Yes, there was. Is he the one who was going to go before them? Yes, it was. All true. But half-truths can look like worship, even when we're worshiping a false god. Half-truths can look like worship, especially when we baptize our self-interests in Yahweh's name. The end of verse 5 Verse 5, and Aaron saw that the people attributed their exodus to this idol, and he built an altar before it, and he, Aaron called, and he said, a feast to Yahweh tomorrow. The people took Yahweh out of the story, you refer only to God or gods. We're not even sure which one. Aaron, on the other hand, claimed that the feast that they were going to have was a feast to the Lord. It sanctified the lie. And we can easily give false credit by sticking God's name to something that he is not sanctioned. Think of it this way. God made me, and God doesn't make mistakes I should be true to myself. And if you love me, you'll accept me for who I am. Riddled with half-truths. Shot through, giving credit to God for making someone. And he doesn't make mistakes. It's not the half-truths that are deadly. It's all the lie in there. But that is a hard argument to buck against in a way that is understandable for most people. It's the understandability of the temptation right there. It's the subtlety of the temptation right there. There's also the deadliness of the temptation right there. We get there by following our heart's own evil desires. 1 Corinthians 10, 6 and 7. We'll end here. Paul reflecting on Israel's experiences. 
1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 6. Now these things took place as, an examples, as examples for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. And what is it that Paul references? Verse 6 of chapter 32. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Exodus 32, verse 6. And the people rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Paul's assessment of this is is this. They desired evil. You know how half-truths fly? People desire evil. They don't want the whole truth. Present them with the whole truth anyway. Be aware of what the whole truth is likely to bring. It will likely not be popular. But it's evil desire that led to the golden calf. Not the crisis. Let's be clear on that. It is our evil desires that lead us astray. We use crises as the excuse for giving vent to our evil desires. And ultimately, what I think this text drives us to is it's that desire for control that the people had that was ultimately the evil. The whole point of idolatry is control, self-control. Why make the calf? You control the calf. That's evil. We seek control because we do not trust God, and then we are carried off by our own evil desires. The story teaches us to beware of our own hearts. They are deceptive, and we will deceive ourselves. The story teaches us to trust God, beware the subtlety of temptations, and live by every word that comes from the mouth of God.